Welcome, gentlemen, and welcome to those who are joining us online, either live or later. Uh, I'm just grateful that we can gather here and people can access our content online later. And we, uh, we have some questions about the rain. And uh, yes, there is some light rain falling, but right now our, our goal is let's gather outside. And if the rain is so heavy that we can't hear one another, that's when we would make the decision, okay, we can't hear <laughs> um, But here we are, and, and I am excited that we get to continue digging into God's Word, that we get to continue learning from the lives of the disciples. This week, we are going to be looking at week number six. It's great that we've been gathering for six weeks, and this is Peter part two. Who do you say that I am? And we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20. So I encourage you to uh, open your Bibles and have that ready. Um, last week, Dale uh, dove into Peter part one, and I, I really appreciated a lot, a lot, most of what he said, all of what he said. What the heck? Dale did a great job. Um, I shouldn't indicate that I didn't like anything because I loved it. Sorry. Uh, sorry for those online. Um, uh, what I really appreciated among the many great things you said was um, we grow as disciples by trying, failing, and turning to Jesus again and again. And we see that in the life of Peter. Uh, we even see that in, in our lives as we turn to the Lord, turn back to him again and again. And yet he continues to use us just as he used this man, Peter, a humble fisherman who was also a headstrong individual. John MacArthur, who is a Bible teacher that many uh, know, uh, refers to him as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. And uh, the truth is, he's a lot like us. Because we can be humble, we can also be very headstrong. And, um, And Peter, just like us, was an ordinary man. And that is why we're reminding ourselves throughout this season that our thesis is, Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish this extraordinary mission. That is the mission of building his kingdom and making disciples in our 21st century, just as he used the disciples in the first century. We should be reminded that a disciple is one who is called to faith in Jesus Christ. That is salvation. And that will be a very important point that we need to think about as we learn from our passage today. A disciple is also called to follow after Jesus and obey him. A disciple is called to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ and tell others about him. And then finally, a disciple is called to fellowship in the family of Jesus Christ, that is, the body of Christ, the church, and have community with others, which is why it's wonderful that we can gather here and that others can join us online. So this week, we're going to be really answering and look at a question about who Jesus really is. I'm not going to say who Jesus was, because Jesus is still alive. He is reigning in heaven, awaiting to return to earth at the appointed time. He is still alive. So we're not going to say who Jesus was, just like he lived in history, now he's dead. He is alive. So who Jesus is. We're going to learn some profound truth from this very short but important passage from Matthew chapter 16. Now, just to tell you, I was really excited in looking ahead and planning things out as we worked as a team to teach on this topic because back almost nine months ago on uh, January 17th, when we were going through the Gospel of Mark, if you were with us, 
we uh, looked at a parallel passage of Peter's confession of who Christ is, accessory of Philippi. And I was so excited about, um, about teaching it back then and to teach it again today because of the significant connections about what was said and where it was said. So um, you may remember, and this may be familiar to you as we walk through it, but uh, context, indeed, we have maps for context. And so what you'll see is this is the map of ancient Palestine, and that red oval shows the area in the north, Galilee. And then even north of that is where we're going to be in Caesarea Philippi. And it was about 25 miles north of Galilee, actually. And here's a zoomed-in map that shows you where Caesarea Philippi is. Now, uh, it's over 1,000 feet above sea level. Like I said, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's interesting. It's still part of the Jewish territory of the day. But it was actually a center of Gentile pagan worship. And that's because of some of the topography and the geography and the history of what this site entailed. Um, and so, uh, just to give you a, an idea of what it was, Caesarea Philippi is named after uh, Caesar, the emperor, but it's also named after Herod Philip II, who this, this was his home. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. And so this was to distinguish it from the other Caesarea, which was on the Mediterranean coast. This is... Caesarea Philippi, like I said, a major center of Gentile pagan worship. And uh, an ancient spring gushed from the rock at the base of Mount Hermon. Now, just a show of hands, I know some of you have actually visited Israel and toured there and been to Caesarea Philippi. Who, who has been to Caesarea Philippi? A few people. And if you've been there, you know what, it, what it's like and the significance of what Jesus uh, shared there and what Peter professed there. But uh, this is pictures of little light, and this is Mount Hermon, which is this great mountain in the northern part of Israel, uh, which has significant uh, impact in the Old Testament. And Jesus was trying to get his men away from the, the crowds, even in Galilee, to really spend this focused time of educating them and equipping them as disciples for one of the most important lessons that they could learn, and that is to learn who is the Christ. And what makes it significant is that you have this big mountain, it's a very rocky terrain. And then you have the city of Caesarea Philippi, which may have looked something like this. You know that there was a temple in the middle that was built um, by Herod the Great. We also know that there were other temples and center of pagan worship there. If you go there today, um, you have a, there's a niche here on the right, which was uh, one of the areas where they would conduct worship. And then you have other carvings in the rock where they would put idols. <clears throat> but what, uh, it's a little hard to see because of the brightness here, but on the right, or on the left rather, you have a picture of the Grotto of Pan, or Pan's Grotto. A Greek mythological, you know, sort of a god, demigod named Pan. You know, the one who's got like goat legs and he plays the flutes. And, um, and he's, a, he's a, a creature from Greek mythology and he was worshipped. There was a spring of water that would bubble up and gush forth. And as far as people could say in ancient times, when they looked down, they actually could not see the bottom. And they believed that it was a bottomless pit, even a pit going down to Hades. And that's going to be significant because it was believed, and if you visit it today, it looks like this. Uh, about a hundred years ago, a big earthquake took place, and so the water stopped gushing forth from this source, 
and eventually started uh, from another place nearby. But it was believed that this could have been in ancient times a, a gate of Hades or a gate of hell, where the, uh, the dead would go. And um, that's going to be significant as we think about where Jesus brought his men and what he would teach about who he was and this great church that he would build that the gates of hell would not overcome. So that, that's our background. That's our context. And I love maps. I love, I, I've never been to this place. Those of you who have been there, it's probably sounding familiar to what you've learned. Thinking about how this, in ancient times, according to the, the pagan thought of the day, was the gate to Hades or a gate to hell. So with all of that in mind, uh, let's read our passage for today from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was Christ. Again, a short but very profound and very important passage in the New Testament and all of the Bible. So we're going to walk through by asking and answering several questions throughout our passage. And the first of, this, of these questions is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is from verses 13 and 14. This is a question that Jesus asks his disciples, and he gets a variety of answers. Um, a writer, A.B. Bruce, that um, Dale has introduced me to in his book, The Training of the Twelve, writes that when Jesus asked this question, he desired of his disciples a recital of current opinions merely by way of preface to a profession of their own faith in the eternal truth concerning himself. He deemed it good to draw from them such a profession at this time because he was about to make communications to them on another subject, vis-a-vis -vis his sufferings, which he knew would sorely, uh, it should be sorely test their faith. He wished them to be fairly committed to the doctrine of his messiahship before proceeding to speak in plain terms on the unwelcome theme of his death, which is what he would teach about in the verses that follow our passage. Uh, Jesus demonstrates a very clear self-identity when he asks the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? That was one of Jesus' most used titles of himself to describe who he was as the divine Son of God and the Son of Man. 
Now, many opinions circulated about who Jesus was, and a lot of confusion as well. If you were to poll the public, they'd say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Elijah, we know from the Old Testament, never passed away. Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven in a chariot, a fiery chariot. And so some thought that maybe he had returned, and that's why this man, Jesus, was able to do all these great works. Uh, some say one of the prophets. It's interesting, even today, you get a variety of opinions about who Jesus is, or in the opinion of some, who he was. Um, the religion of Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet, one of God's mighty prophets. But that's it. Which is why, according to the Islam, Islamic religion, Jesus did not die on the cross because God would never punish one of his prophets to such a humiliating death. Um, and some people today say, oh, he was a good teacher. I believe he was a, a radical leader. But that's it. That's where they draw the line. And as you can see, as one friend wisely pointed out to me a long time ago, uh, most of the false religions and cults of our, of our day that we see start with a misunderstanding and an incorrect understanding of who Jesus Christ is. That's why... This question is so important. It's interesting of all the answers that the public gives, the disciples don't ever say, well, some of you, some say that you are the Messiah. That was not apparently the prevailing opinion of many in Jesus' day. We move then to maybe the most important question that we'll ask and answer today. As Jesus turns in chapter or verse 15 to say to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Thanks for sharing with me about who they think I am, but who do you say that I am? And this, guys, is a question we can ask ourselves each and every day. It is a primary and penetrating question that Jesus asks his disciples. Now, Peter, our disciple for the day, known for stepping forward boldly, and, and sometimes that was helpful, sometimes that was hurtful. In this case, it was helpful. Peter steps forward as spokesman for the group, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This uh, term Christ is significant. Christ is from a Greek word, Christos, which comes as a translation of a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which is where we get Messiah. It means the anointed one. It means in the understanding of the Jewish faith and the Old Testament hope, a king like David, who was also the Mashiach, also the anointed one, also the Messiah, who was anointed by God to lead his people and to deliver them and to provide leadership for them, leading them to a deeper understanding of who God is and how he wants his people to be. And the, there was great anticipation that a son of David, a descendant of David, would come and free the people of ancient Israel from the tyranny of the ancient Roman government and rule them once again. And that is, that is all true as you look at the Old Testament. But what Jesus was trying to start distinguishing for his men is that he was much more than a political messiah who would come and sit on a throne and rule from Jerusalem. He's a spiritual Messiah who came to show just how big God's kingdom really is 
and just how broad God's salvation would be, even to the Gentiles, to deliver not from a political ruler, but from a spiritual ruler of sin and death. His disciples did not fully understand this at the time. But it is significant that Peter says, not only are you the Messiah, you're not just an earthly character, an earthly figure, but you are also the son of the living God. So we see Peter very accurately and importantly distinguishing that Jesus was fully God and fully man as the Son of God and Messiah. And again, notice the, the symbolic irony of Jesus allowing Peter to make this profession in this place, in Caesarea Philippi, where Caesar was proclaimed to be Lord by the people. But yet here, Peter is proclaiming that Jesus is indeed Lord. And this is a major step, guys, in Peter and the disciples' evolving understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We know, as Dale taught last week, uh, at the end when uh, Peter walks out on water and he sinks and Jesus helps him and he gets back into the boat and everything is, is calm, the disciples say in Matthew 14, truly you are the Son of God. And now there's a continual building of that teaching with Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have a quotation from uh Jack Dean Kingsbury, which is just a cool name, in his work, Matthew as Story. Matthew shows that whereas the public in Israel does not receive Jesus and wrongly conceives of him as being a prophet, Peter, as a spokesman for the disciples, confesses Jesus a right to be the Son of God and reveals that the disciples' evaluative point of view concerning Jesus' identity is in alignment with that of God. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we move to our next question. Who reveals this profession to Peter? And honestly, to us as well. Because Jesus says, uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father revealed this to you. Um, another quote from A.B. Bruce on this topic. Um, these words evidently imply that the person addressed had said something very extraordinary, something he could not have learned from the traditional established belief of his generation respecting Messiah, something to which he could not have attained by the unaided effort of his own mind. The confession is, is virtually uh, represented as an inspiration, a revelation, a flash of light from heaven, the utterance not of the rude fisherman, but of the divine spirit speaking. Uh, this is a revelation that God, through his Holy Spirit, through himself, reveals to Peter. Uh, Peter would not have been able to make this profession on his own without the divine grace and assistance of God himself. And guys, that's true in our lives as well. Uh, we in no way can say uh, with, with faith and with genuine belief and integrity, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, unless God allows us and reveals that message to us in our lives. God reveals this to us today through his Holy Spirit as well as through his word. And that's why salvation is an act of his grace and his supernatural work. And what Jesus goes on to do is to start to explain an incredible 
reality that will unfold in the, uh, really, you could say, depending on this, could be a matter of months, uh, but certainly in the, uh, the years, the decades, the centuries, and the millennia, almost, that have followed since this very moment in history, it begins to unfold that there is this incredible expression of God's kingdom known as the church that will take place. And in leading up to his description of what the church will be about, Jesus makes a profound statement about Peter and what he has said. Because he says to him, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So we have a few questions to answer in that. First of all, what is this rock? Um, interestingly, when we think about how Jesus addresses him, you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. So it, you, don't, you don't see it in the English language, but in the Greek language, uh, the word Peter is Petros, which means rock or rocky. Remember, this is the, the name that Jesus gave to him. Does anyone remember what his birth name, given name was? Simon. Right. So that was, that was the name that when he came out, boom, his parents named him Simon. And Jesus gives him an additional name. It's not a replacement name. It's an additional name, Peter. And what we find it's, it's interesting is when Jesus talks to him often throughout the Gospels and refers to him as Simon, it's because he has been more like Simon. He's done something he shouldn't have done. He said something he shouldn't have said. And Jesus is almost reminding him of his original name with his original identity. But when he does something that is right, that is true, that is valuable, Jesus will refer to him either as Peter or Simon Peter to say, now you're acting and teaching and speaking like the rock that I said you would be and it said, said that you would become. So when he says that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church, he's saying, you have said something that is right and true. Now the word Peter, as I said, is Petros. The word rock is Petra. It's a slightly different word, but it's very close to selling. It's actually a different uh, gender. Petros is masculine, Petra is feminine. And so um, that leads us to try to understand, oh, uh, one more quote that, that Dale passed on to me, which I thought was very interesting, from Craig Blomberg in his commentary. Jesus' declaration, uh, declaration you are Peter, parallels Peter's confession, you are the Christ. As if to say, since you can tell me who I am, I will tell you who you are. And that is indeed consistent when Peter has said something that is true. He says, yes, you are Peter. You are the rock. You are rocky. You are solid. So what is this rock then? How do we understand this question upon this rock? And there are differences of interpretation. Um, could, it, could it be that Peter is the rock? It could be. We certainly see um, the similarity of those words, Petros for Peter and Petra for rock. Maybe that's what Jesus was intending to make the connection about for his disciples. Um, uh, certainly the Catholic Church takes this interpretation, believing Peter to be the first pope. Um, and and I, I don't share that, uh, that application if Peter is indeed the rock. We know that there are um, 
there is significant foundational work that all of the apostles did. And so Peter certainly could be the rock of the church. He certainly had an important role in the foundation of the church as God used him and the disciples to become apostles. So it could be that Peter is the rock. We could also see that Peter's profession about Jesus, as many uh, interpreters will hold this view, that Peter's profession about Jesus is the rock, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and it's that profession that is the foundation of the church. And, and this could be as well. Um, I, I lean more in this direction that that is what Jesus could have meant. But there's even a third view, which recently as I've been studying it, I find to be maybe the view that I embrace more. And that is that Jesus himself is the rock. Now, of course, we see that the third view, Jesus himself, and the second view, Peter's profession about Jesus, are intricately tied together. Because what Jesus is declaring, or what Peter is declaring about Jesus, is that he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. Uh, but when we think about the terminology for rock, in the Old Testament, rock was often a way to refer to this Messiah, this Messianic character who would come. We read in Psalm 118, 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is actually a passage that is repeated in the Old Testament by Jesus himself and by Peter, even in one of his epistles. And we also read a very interesting passion passage from Ephesians chapter 2, which I think is informative in helping us, at least helping me understand who the rock is. So talking about the church, the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So if you were to ask me, who is the rock? Yes, Peter is a, is a foundational piece of the church as it is built but I think that Jesus indeed is the rock. And we find out who this rock is through Peter's confession about Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Then what is my church? And I, I really like how Jesus refers to it as his church. It's not, even today, it's not a, a pastor's church or a preacher's church. It's Jesus' church. The word church, and this is only the, this is used, this word ecclesia, which means to be called out. A, a gathering of the called out ones is only used here and in Matthew 18 in the Gospels. And then, of course, it is used in many ways in Paul's writings in the, in the letters. Um, but thinking about the church, this gathering of the redeemed, special to Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, belonging to Jesus. And then again, that fact that the gates of hell will not overcome it. Remember this, this location. Remember where they are. It's as if Jesus is standing right in front of this area where the ancient pagans believed the gate of hell last was, or the gate to Hades. And as Jesus is saying, not even death. And you, just, you see a representation of death right here, guys. Not even death is going to overcome my 
church. Why is that? Why will death not conquer Jesus' church? That is because Jesus, the rock and foundation of the church, conquered death. We read about that in Revelation chapter 1, among many other places in the Bible, speaking of the great resurrection of Jesus. When we read Jesus himself, and in Revelation, when John sees Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me. Imagine that, Jesus, the glorified Christ, touching his beloved disciple, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades, because the gates of hell and Hades will not overcome my church. The cornerstone conquered death. Death will not conquer the church. Tom Constable, a professor I had, writes this. Jesus meant the powers of death, Satan, and his hosts, doing their most powerful work in opposing life, would not prevail over the church. The church cannot die. This statement anticipated Jesus' resurrection and the resurrection and translation of church saints. Even Jesus' death would not prevent him from building the church Jesus' church would be a living church, just as Yahweh was the living God. Amen? This is true. Next, what are the kingdom, or what are the keys of the kingdom? Now, uh, again, distinguishing a bit of the the Catholic understanding here, uh, I don't believe that this means that Peter would become the first pope. And that when he would seek ex cathedra or from the seat of the, the, the Pope, that he was speaking infallibly about uh, issues of faith and practice. Uh, if you go to St. Peter's today, um, I should have put a, a red oval around here so you could see more clearly. But in Peter's right hand are a set of keys. And, and the papal crest, if you will, shows a pair of keys indicating the Catholic understanding of this authority given to Peter. This is where we also get this idea of people and those jokes about heaven meeting St. Peter at the pearly gates, right? Because he's the one that can unlock the gates. Um, I, I don't think that's what this is meaning. Because if you look two chapters from now, Jesus says to his, all of his disciples, whatever, is, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So I believe that Jesus is talking about authority that he is giving to Peter and would give to all of the disciples to carry out the work of his ministry. In many ways, rabbis of the day believed that binding and loosing had to do with uh, what was being permitted and what was not being permitted in their teaching. Uh, but the truth is, unless someone embraces Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, they are not permitted into the kingdom of heaven. And so we even see Peter speaking out that, of that authority in his statement. Peter was not supreme. But his confession about the Christ was supremely important in building God's kingdom. So whatever authority God was, or Jesus was giving to Peter and would later give to the disciples two chapters later was consistent with what God was already doing in heaven, in his heavenly kingdom. So we move on to our final question. It's supposed to be our final question. Um, 
I'll just say that the final question was, why tell no one that he was the Christ? And that comes in verse 20. He strictly charged with them, do not tell them that I am the Christ. Because of a high degree of misunderstanding about who Jesus at that time was and what the Messiah was to be about, Jesus did not want political turmoil stirred up even more. And so he also knew that his disciples still needed more time to understand who he was as Messiah, that he would suffer and die. But the truth is, through his ministry, Jesus would demonstrate that he indeed was and still is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's why his question to Peter and the disciples of who do you say that I am was so important. And that remains important to us today. He questioned in all of this, guys, is who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that he is the Christ, the Messiah? Which is that first step of discipleship. The disciples fall to faith in Jesus as the Christ, right? Do you say that he is the rock, the foundation of the church, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Do you say that he is the one who chooses us and uses us just like he chose and used an ordinary man like Peter. Because, as we know, Jesus uses ordinary men to accomplish his extraordinary mission in this world. And who he is becomes one of the most important questions that we must ask and answer ourselves. Um, I'm going to go to small group time in just a minute. I'm going to advance my slides here. Next week, we're going to have James and John. You will drink my cup from Matthew chapter 20. So if you want to read ahead on that, feel free. Uh, and just a, an idea of where we're going to go in our discussion time. These are the questions I would like you guys to, to talk about after I pray. And then online, I would encourage you to to think through these questions as well. Uh, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a prophet? A good teacher? Or do you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God? And the ramifications of that are significant. And then secondly, what confidence should we have knowing that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church? So with those two questions in our minds, I will pray, and then I encourage you to circle your chairs up and just spend as much time as you want and need digging into these questions and the significance that they have for us today. So let me pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for uh, the humble and headstrong man of Peter, who was bold enough to say when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? To his disciples, Peter stepped forward and offered the right answer. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. What a blessing to know that you revealed that to him, and you reveal that to us today as well. And I pray that we would understand that the, the living Christ is still alive in our midst today, that through your Holy Spirit, you are still doing an incredible work of building your church that the gates of hell will not overcome. Let that give us confidence as we live and move today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.